0: Turn to the book of Isaiah this morning, this morning we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 45, Isaiah chapter 45. We're going to read the, the whole chapter verses 1 through 25 for us. Let me remind you as we look at this passage, as we hear from the Lord, that this is God's good and kind and gracious word to you this morning. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue the nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. That people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open, that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you beginning? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and the one who formed him, ask of me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their hosts. I have stirred up him in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush. And the Sabians, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other, no God besides him. Truly you are a God who hides yourself, O God of Israel, the Savior. All of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. He shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity." For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, Seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn. For my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me are righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who are incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray and ask for the Lord to help us understand his word. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for giving us this word today, and we pray uh, that that by this, uh, by seeing your surprising choice uh, of a savior of your people, that we might be uh, astounded by your salvation, that we might be in awe of your work, that we might come to Jesus Christ today. Help us to see him and to to see him in his glory. Uh, help. I uh, pray that you would help us. To to walk in the light this morning, in the light of your word, we pray these things in Christ's name, Amen. I was reflecting this week uh, on whether or not there was anything really surprising anymore. Uh, I've been as I've been working through Isaiah, I've been kind of trying to tease at that theme of of surprise. Um. And I was thinking about it and I was considering, you know, whether or not we are really surprised by very much, you know, with all of our technology, with all of our access to all this information. And as I was doing this, uh, you know, if, if in that moment on Monday morning, if you would have looked through the window of my office, if you would have seen me, you would have seen just a, a normal looking guy sitting there at a normal looking uh, desk doing nothing but thinking. But then in a split second, you would have been surprised because in a split second, I was flailing my arms all around. I I actually jumped up and I pushed my chair back. Chair fell to the floor. And if you would have been watching this, you would have been going, going, what in the world happened? Well, I'll, I'll tell you what happened. As I was thinking about surprises, a spider dropped down from the ceiling right in front of me. And I was surprised. I was scared half to death. Jumped up and I looked like a wild man. Um... And so I thought, how appropriate it is that I was surprised while I was thinking about surprises. And that's the way the Lord works sometimes. He surprises us at the most surprising times. And, and again, this book of Isaiah really is pulling out kind of that idea that the Lord works in really surprising ways. Uh, and, and it's really interesting because, I ho- and I hope you've seen this through Isaiah, that the Lord does things in ways that we would not do them. And that's kind of the proof that He is God and we are not. So uh, there's a lot of surprising things also since we're in the Christmas season. I want you to understand the biblical message of Christmas is really a surprising message. Um, and what I hope to do, and, and hopefully I'll get to do this a little bit as we, as we end As I end the sermon, I want to look at that a little bit closer in this idea that the the biblical message is a surprising uh, message. But this morning, as we we look at this passage, I want to look at it in three ways. So first of all, we're going to see Yahweh's surprising uh, servant, and that is verses 1 through 8. But it's really a continuation of chapter 44, what we saw last week. Secondly, we're going to see Yahweh's reasoned response to our surprise. And we see that in verses 9 through 13. And then third, we're going to see Yahweh's consummate call to us. Basically, we need to respond to Yahweh's response. And so we see that in verses 14 through 24. So as we begin, first I want to look at uh, verses 1 through 8, Yahweh's surprising servant. Last week, if we would have been the original audience hearing Isaiah preach this or reading this for the first time, we would have been absolutely shocked by what we saw in chapter 44 at the very end in verse uh, 28 because God says this who says of Cyrus he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purposes we would have been shocked because we would have been reading that Yahweh the God of the Jews the true God over heaven and earth chose Cyrus to be his shepherd Um, Cyrus was a pagan king Cyrus was the one that God was going to choose to rebuild Jerusalem and Judah and the temple. A pagan king. Well, who was Cyrus? Let's think about him for just a moment. Cyrus was an actual historical figure. He was the king of the Persian Empire. Uh, uh, Well, he lived between um, 599 to 530 BC. Uh, He ruled for about 30 years uh, until... Uh, so from about 560 to 530 B.C. He, was, he ruled. He was a great ruler. He was able to bring the, the empire of the Medes and the Persians together uh, and make them an even greater empire. He expanded the borders of the Persian Empire. Uh, historians actually look to uh, Cyrus as an example in history, uh, one of the rare examples in the ancient times of a benevolent ruler. Uh, most of the rulers of the great empires of the old uh, in, in the ancient times in the uh, before Christ were wicked tyrants. But Cyrus was benevolent. He was a kind ruler. And so, um, so that's one of the things that comes up, this real historical person. And God names him 100 years before he's born and says, I'm going to use him as my servant. Well, one of the themes of the book of Isaiah is that God raises up nations, he causes them to rise, he causes them to fall, that God works in and through nations. Uh, And that's surprising enough that he does it. He doesn't just work in his one nation, but he works in all nations. But what's really surprising about this is that God calls this specific man to be his leader, to be his ruler. And he says actually that he's going to establish worship by this pagan ruler. By this pagan king. Look in verse 45 or verse 1 of chapter 45. There's a very specific word that is used that God actually uses to describe Cyrus. So the Lord is talking, Yahweh is talking to Cyrus, and this is what he calls him. Thus says the Lord to his anointed to Cyrus. Now the idea of anointing is one that comes out, it's used often in the Bible. uh, But But very rarely is it ever used of a specific person. Very rarely is a person called an anointed person. And then this is the only place in the Bible, and this is important, the only place in all of the Bible when a non-Jewish person is called the anointed. Now perhaps using the actual Hebrew word here will help us understand the importance of this. And this is one of the few places we're using the, the actual Hebrew word helps us understand a little bit more, okay? So here's what it actually says in the Hebrew. Thus says the Lord to his Messiah, to Cyrus. There's only a few people in the Bible that were called the Messiah. The Messiah was the one that all of history was looking for to be the Savior of God's people. Yahweh had promised the Messiah would come and save his people. And now God says, Cyrus is the Messiah. That is shocking. That is surprising. He not only says that he's going to be the Messiah, but he says how he's going to be the Messiah. He says, I'm going to hold Cyrus by his right hand. I'm going to go before Cyrus. I'm going to level all of these nations. I'm going to give him all of the wealth of the nations that they've hidden. I'm going to make Cyrus and the Persians strong, powerful, and wealthy. I am going to bless the Persians and he quits Cyrus to do all of these things. But here's what's interesting. But Cyrus does not worship Yahweh. As a matter of fact here, we're told that Cyrus does not know that Yahweh is the one that does this. You see it in verse 4 and verse 5. God says, For the sake of my servant Jacob and for in Israel my chosen, I call you, that's Cyrus, by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. And then in chapter or in verse 5 I equip you, though you do not know me. So I want you to understand the point here, that he is equipping a pagan king to be his Messiah for his people, even though that pagan king does not know him, does not worship him, does not bless him. And that's surprising because typically we think this is the way God works. God blesses those that bless him. But Cyrus and the Persians don't know Yahweh. They don't bless Yahweh. And Yahweh is blessing them all the same. Well, the question that should arise from that is, well, why does God act this way? Why does he do this? And in these verses, in verses 1 through 8, there's at least three reasons that he gives as to why he does this. First, well, before I get into the three reasons, let me just say this, and I'm going to say it again in a moment. These three reasons are so important because they answer every single why question that you can ever have. Okay, That's how important this is. If you ask the question why, these three reasons that he gives in these eight verses are the three reasons why everything happens. So the first reason, why does God do this? God says that he raises up Cyrus... And the, uh, So that Cyrus and the other nations can be absolutely sure that Yahweh alone and only Yahweh is the God that should be worshipped. God says that he is anointing Cyrus and he's doing it because in some way this is a means that he uses to call other people to know him, to know who he is. In verse 6 he says that this actually proves his godness to the world. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone believes in Him, but it does mean that whether you believe or not, you are left without excuse about believing that Yahweh alone is the one true God. Secondly, God does this for the sake of His servant Jacob. I hope you saw that again. We saw it last week. We saw it again this week. Why does God do this? For the benefit of His servant Jacob. Understand, God says, I am raising up a pagan king. I am raising up a king that is, uh, is, according to the standards of the Bible, is technically wicked. Because he doesn't worship Yahweh and he lives a wicked life. He is wicked. I am raising him up for the benefit of my people. I am raising up a wicked leader to bless my people. And then thirdly, he says, most importantly, Yahweh does this to show his glory. He says in verse seven, and this is this 2020. I mean, whatever you think of 2020 and how things have happened. Just look at this should explain why things have happened in 2020 the way that they have. Look in verse seven. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. Why has 2020 happened the way that it has? Because God makes well-being and calamity. God makes the good times and the bad times. God is sovereign over all of those things. And all of those things, he says, I am the Lord who does all of these things. And he says, I'm doing this for the sake of his glory. God alone receives glory for all of the things that are happening in the world, regardless of whether or not we understand it. God receives the glory. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Well, I want to modify that question a little bit and ask this. What is the chief end of the work of God? The chief end of the work of God is to glorify Himself so that His people can enjoy Him forever. God does all the things that He does for His own glory, for the good of His people for His glory, for His name to go forth. And again, here's the point. I want you to realize that only God would work this way. Only God would bless His people by making a pagan nation great. Only God would raise up and call a pagan man His Messiah. Only God who created everything out of nothing could be creative enough to think this up and to actually accomplish it. And it's also, again, a good idea to get in our head that all of the events of the world are working together for those three reasons. God can use even wicked rulers to bless His people. And God delights to use wicked rulers to bless His people. He delights to use wicked rulers to grow His kingdom and to glorify Himself. If God wills it, that's the way that it will happen. And he does all of that in order to prove that he only is God for the good of his people and for his his glory to go forth in the world. And I hope that that is a comfort to you here at the end of 2020 as you look back over this year and say, why have these things happened? Because God's in control of it. He creates well-being and calamity, and it's all for the sake of his people and for his glory. But now there's... There's kind of an unspoken question that comes up in this passage right at this point. At the end of verse 8, it's almost as though God shifts his focus and he starts doing something different. He starts talking a little bit different. You see something similar in the letter to the Romans, especially in all of all of the Apostle Paul's writings, but especially in the letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul, who is a, a Jewish scholar, is... He understands the Jewish scriptures and he understands how they're written. And he understands that this is the way that God thinks. And so he writes in a similar way. And here's what God's doing. God understands that he says, I'm going to raise up Cyrus. And it seems like madness. And he says, and you have some objections to that. And so God now deals with those objections. And in Romans chapter 9, the apostle Paul is borrowing right from here. When he says this, he says, But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to the molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? So here's what's happening. Let me just kind of clarify again. God has said, I am going to raise up a pagan ser- uh, servant uh, to do my bidding. And all of God's people are like, uh, what are you doing? This seems like madness. And God says, I know that that's the question that's lying behind. Uh, you know, that, that's the question that you have. And He says, I'm going to give you some answers for it. But I want you to understand that that question, God, what you're doing seems like madness, That or that statement, there, there's a heart that lies behind it. And the heart is essentially saying, God, you are not trustworthy. That what you're doing in the world isn't. Right. That what you're doing in the world, that your work, Lord, is subpar. And it's kind of like this Um, Have you ever seen someone loading a dishwasher and you've thought to yourself, oh my goodness, they're doing it all wrong? Oh, uh, you know, I can't believe it. And maybe in the back of your mind, you think something like, how has this person made it this long in life if that is the way that they've loaded a dishwasher? And you think, okay, I'm not going to say anything now. I'm just going to come back later and I'm going to fix everything that they've done wrong. That's kind of the attitude that we have when we look at the, what God is doing in the world and we say, God, you know, or maybe we don't even say it. We kind of just think it like this is a mess and God doesn't know what he's doing. Except in this instance, God is the one who has made the dishwasher and the the dishes, and he's the one that knows how it should be loaded best. And we come along and say, let me do it, God. I got this. It's kind of what's going on in this. But God answers that. And he says, look, you need to understand a couple of things. So in verses 9 and 10, here's the first answer to that subtle question that we ask. God says this, woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots, does the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or your work has no handles? And then does he does a man say, basically, does a man say to a father, I can't believe you're this is your child, or or you know, like, oh my goodness, mom, I can't believe you're having this baby. It's kind of silly in a sense, because he's saying it's like a, a pot that's being made that that's while he's being formed and made, looks up at the potter going, You're doing it wrong. Nope, that's not right. You should have gave me handles. He says, that's what you are like whenever you question what the Lord is doing. And you also see this, you see this actually in very subtle ways in our lives. When we grumble and complain about how things are going in the world or how things are going in our life, kind of that question, God, or that statement, God, you're doing it wrong, is behind all of it. Now, we're savvy enough usually to know we're not supposed to say those things out loud. Uh, but we grumble and complain about how our lives are going and how things are going and our work and our job and our families and all of those things. But God says to us, I am the creator. I know what I'm doing and you don't. And even if you could have all of the access to the information that I have, you couldn't handle it if you did. So that's kind of the first answer. He says, I've made you. You can't handle it. Trust me with it. Second thing he says in verse 12, since God is the creator, he says this, I made the earth. I created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens and commanded all their hosts. It's another way of him saying, I made the world. I made everything in it. I made Cyrus. I made, I made the Jewish people. I made all of it. I can do what I want. God can do all his holy will because this is his world. He can do whatever he wants. And you know what God's holy will in this instance is? He says it in verse 13. I have stirred him up in righteousness. I will make all of his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. He says, you know what my will is? I want to raise up a pagan king. I want him to rebuild my city. I want him to rebuild my temple. I want him to set my people go. And because I want it that way, that's the way it's going to happen. God answers our why questions. God, why did you do it that way with those two things? He said, you don't have any right to ask me because I made you. You don't have the authority. Secondly, he says, I'm going to do what I want to do. Now, to some of us, that might those two responses might sound like a parent who has listened to his child say, why, 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 a hundred times and out of Out of just kind of this frustration, the parent just kind of shouts out, because I said so. But that's not what God is saying here. God isn't saying it's going to happen because I said so. What he's saying is you need to recognize your smallness. You need to recognize that because you are small in the grand scheme of things, no matter how large you are, you're small in the grand scheme of things, that you can't handle all of the information that God handles. You need to understand that you have a place and God has made you for that place. So what are you called to do? You're called to trust God. Now, some of you, if you've been parents, you've had a child ask you this question. Why do I need to go to school? Why do I have to do all of this work? And you can give lots of answers to that question, but you know, the child will never understand why they have to go to school until they go to school. It's not one that you can say, well, here's the reason why, because of this. And usually that child will not learn why they had to go to school until years after they were out of school. We don't have the means to answer that kind of question. Let me give you an example out of my own life personally. I, I was one of those children. I was absolutely, um, I was rebellious with my parents when it came to schoolwork. And I could not stand math. And I asked my parents, why do I have to do math? Why do I have to do math? Why do I have to do math? And every year it's like, mom would sign me up for the most complicated math uh, classes and I was terrible at math. Um, I I just could not, I couldn't fathom why I had to do this. Mom, why do I have to do this? Why do I have to do this? Well, in truth, my mom did not know the answer as to why I needed to learn all of that math. But God did know the reason why. And I think I finally understood here at 43 years old, why from the age of 5 to however old I was when I took my last, you know, 21, when I took my last math class, why I had to learn math, and here's the answer. I'm trying to think of the best way to say this. My mom did not know that decades into my future, I would have a son who loves numbers. Absolutely loves numbers. And all day long, our conversations are surrounded, surrounding. Numbers, Dad, what's the largest number you can think of? Dad, what's two plus a million? And I know to us, we're like, well, that's a million and two. But he's like, no, I mean, like, how big a number can you get to? What's two plus a million plus one? And he goes on and on. He's five years old. My five-year-old son loves numbers. Now, if what if years ago when I was six years old and I asked my mom, why do I have to learn math? If she would have said, well, one day in your future... You're going to have a son who loves math. And if you don't learn math, you're not going to be able to talk to your son. That would have made no sense, right? But now, looking back on it, my mom didn't know the answer. My dad didn't know the answer. Parents, you don't know the answer why. They don't know why. But God does. And God's plan is perfect for you. And I want you to understand that. God's plan for you is perfect why does God raise up a pagan king? He says, because it's the perfect thing for you. The last thing, and I'm going to do this very quickly because I don't have time to do it. Uh, verses 14 through 25. God says, now there are six calls to you. Because I am God, you, have, you need to respond in these six ways. I'm going to give them to you very quickly. If you want them later, I will give them to you. I'm, just going, to, I'm going to do this very quickly. God says, I'm calling you to do these six things in response to me. I want you to acknowledge my sovereignty in verse 14. I want you to acknowledge my salvation in verses 15 through 17. I want you to acknowledge my authoritative word in verses 18 through 19. I want you to acknowledge my church in verses 20 through 21. I want you to acknowledge my acceptance of sinners in verses 22 through 23. And then the last thing, I want you to acknowledge his judgment and his justification. So God says, here are six things that I want you to do, six calls that I'm giving to you. But I want to focus on the last two real quick. Uh, the last two, beginning in verse uh, 22, the acceptance of sinners. God says, turn to me and be saved to all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. God says, I'm doing all of these things so and I want you to see that I accept sinners. Why did he set up Cyrus to go back and rebuild the temple? Because he wanted proper worship to take place and proper worship was to show that God in His holiness, could be approached by sinners. That through the sacrifice of a substitute, you can come to God. God says, I want you to recognize, I welcome sinners. I accept sinners through the substitute. There has to be an atoning sacrifice. And that's kind of the point. He says, will you recognize that I accept sinners through the atoning sacrifice? And then at the very end in verse 25 he says in the lord all the offspring of israel shall be justified and shall shall be justified and shall glory. What he's saying there is do you recognize that god alone is the one that justifies sinners? The word justifies it simply means that he declares us righteous. He declares us who are sinners to be righteous in his sight. God says do you recognize that I alone declare sinners to be righteous? But there's a condition. Did you notice the condition? He says, all the offspring of Israel. In order to be one who is declared righteous, you have to be an offspring of Israel. And you might say, well, wait a second. The offsprings of Israel, those are the Jewish people and I'm not Jewish. Does that mean I can't be justified? Well, no. That's why we need the New Testament. Because the New Testament teaches that not all who are Israel are Israel. Because it's not a matter of who you are biologically, it's about who you are spiritually, being born of the Spirit. And what we're reminded in this is that God says, I justify all those who are spiritually the offspring of Israel. Those who have faith in Jesus Christ have been justified by Jesus and receive glory from Jesus. But then there's the judgment part of this as well that those who are ashamed of Jesus, those that are ashamed of Yahweh and His acceptance of sinners through a substitute, and those who are ashamed of Jesus and His work for them, they will receive judgment from God. He says, Only in the Lord shall it be said of me, Our righteousness and strength to Him shall come and be ashamed all who are incensed against Him. What should you do? You need to come to Jesus Today, trust in Jesus today. In conclusion, let me say this. The whole point of this, God raises up Cyrus and it's a shock. And he says, you think that's shocking? Just wait until my true Messiah comes, the better Messiah comes. Because it's not going to be a pagan ruler. It's going to be God himself who was born as a baby, who takes on human flesh who was born in a cattle stall, born in poverty, born in humiliation, born to take your sin on himself. That is what is shocking and surprising about Christmas. Jesus is the better surprising servant. That's the whole point of Matthew. Matthew is the whole Old Testament or the whole New Testament answer to all of the Old Testament. Who is the better servant? It's Jesus Christ. That's why Christmas is so great. Because God came to save sinners. Trust him today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us this word. And I pray that you would help us. That that we would see Jesus as the true and better surprising servant. The true and better Messiah who came to save us. Not just release us from our exile. But bring us all the way home into your presence. Father, I pray that we would trust in Jesus today, all of us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.